Y'all, when, when our kids were babies, little kids, they would cry out in the night. And Jennifer and I would take turns going to check on them. And that's when I learned of the dangers of walking through the house in the dark. Every parent learns this lesson sooner or later. Stepping on Legos, stepping on the dog, uh, you know, jamming my toes into every single article of furniture in our house. Uh, And eventually it occurred to me, it took me a while, but it occurred to me that I could use my phone as a flashlight and just learn to shuffle. Like I learned the art as a dad of shuffling through the house, okay? It does you a lot of good. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, we're, we're not really made for the dark. Uh, we're not nocturnal creatures. We're diurnal. That means we're made for the daytime. Uh, human beings are just the way God made us, right? But when we talk about darkness, when I use that term darkness, this is something really fascinating. We all understand darkness as a physical reality. This time of year, it starts getting dark around 4.30. We know what darkness is. But intuitively, we also know what darkness means. It's not just a physical reality. It's a spiritual thing. That every, every culture in every generation in human history, we've all shared this in common, that we naturally associate darkness with things like lostness and fear and despair and sin and evil and death. Everybody intuitively knows that's what darkness means at its deepest level. And y'all, that's, that's not just church language either. You think about our, our most popular stories within our culture. Uh, in, in Harry Potter, the great villain is the Dark Lord Voldemort. In The Lord of the Rings, he's the Dark Lord Sauron who wants to cover Middle-earth in darkness. In Star Wars, which side is Darth Vader on? The dark side, right? Everybody knows that. It's the dark side, and he wants to bring people from the light into the dark. See, we just know that darkness is more than physical reality. There's a spiritual thing there inside of that term. And the reason we understand the world this way is because God made it this way. God made us to see the world in terms of light and darkness. Do you know the very first thing God is recorded as having said in the Bible? Way back in Genesis 1, God looks into the darkness, into the formless void, and he says, let there be light. And God saw that the light was good, and then he separated the light from the darkness. But God doesn't just create light in the midst of darkness. The Bible tells us, toward the end in 1 John, the Bible tells us that this is who God is. John says God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Now, you don't even have to be a religious person to know what that means. If God is light, that means that God is loving and pure and good and truthful. In him, there is no darkness. And so here, the the truth is, I know this is true. Certainly, if you're anything like me, it's December the 1st, and we are full on into Christmas Thanksgiving came late this year, and so we've got even less time than usual to get all our stuff together. And Christmas time for you probably means a lot for your calendar and for your budget and for your family. But above all, here's what it means. Here's what Christmas is. It's light piercing into the darkness. Christmas is God's refusal to leave us in darkness. And instead, he makes his grace to shine upon us. 
And that's what this great prophecy in Isaiah 9 is all about. Take a look with me at Isaiah 9 and verse 1. Now, we, we enter into the middle of some prophecy here, but I'll try to give some context as we go. Verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, God treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, or he esteemed them lightly. But later on, God shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Y'all, the context here is as Isaiah delivers this prophecy, the northern kingdom of Israel was headed toward disaster. Uh, the Assyrians, the, the murderous, powerful Assyrians, were soon to come and overwhelm them and take them captive, and that would be God's judgment upon his people for their sin and their rebellion. And the fact is, the land would never be the same. The land would never return to its former glory. Uh, this northern region would become eventually a kind of a melting pot of peoples and races, and to the Israelite, that was a sign of condemnation. That was a sign of a curse. Wherever Jews had to live with Gentiles intermingled together, that was a, an expression of God's condemning curse upon his people, that God had certainly forgotten them and left them to rot in darkness. That was their impression. But then God speaks through Isaiah concerning a day beyond that one. And I want to show you the same verse. The same verse actually shows up in Matthew 4. You don't need to turn there. We'll put it on the screen. But Matthew's going to connect the dots for us concerning the promise that God has for these displaced and discouraged people. This is from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness, saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, we see right off the bat that the light is not a what. The light is not a thing. The light is not just a power source. The light is a whom. The light is a person. Matthew says that when Jesus turned his face to Galilee... He did it in fulfillment of this prophecy that God made his light shine in a dark place. And as it turns out, Galilee is where Jesus spent most of his ministry, where he performed most of his miracles, the place from, where, from which he, he selected most of his disciples. They were Galileans. See, this was a place assumed to be under the condemning curse of God. They were under gloom and anguish, and yet now... Isaiah says, now Matthew affirms, this place is the showcase of God's glory. This is the place where the light is shining most brightly in all the world. So here's what I want us to see today. I want us to, to know this, that what, what's happening in Galilee, 
what Isaiah 9 looks ahead to, what, I, what Matthew affirms as having, having happened in the Gospels, that this is not just about what happened then. This is about us. This is for us. The light that comes into the darkness is what happens to every person when we come to Jesus. We are a people living in darkness who must be invaded by God's light, who must be uh, uh, exposed to a new light, a new way of, of life and being. And see, this is really the central message of the Bible, of light coming into darkness. See, when, when, uh, when John wanted to express the identity of Jesus Christ, that magnificent part of John chapter 1 where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Here's what John says right after that. In him, in the word, in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overwhelm or overcome it. The darkness could not comprehend the light. The light was far more powerful. This is what happens for all of us. And so I want us to look again at Isaiah 9 into the light that we've been given And specifically, I want us to see how darkness is overwhelmed. Um, Remember what darkness symbolizes. I gave you a little list earlier. Let me repeat it here. I'm going to give you five things that we all intuitively know. This is what darkness means. Darkness means lostness, fear, despair, sin, and death. And God comes in to overwhelm the darkness. Now, it's going to take an awful lot of light to cover all that, right? We'll see what happens in, in, in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 6. The promise of light has been given, but how? What's it going to look like? How's it going to come to us? Verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now think again about the context here. God is foretelling gloom and anguish to his people. The Assyrians have not yet invaded. It's coming. And it's going to be bad. But then, then a great light. And the light, listen, the light is going to have a face, God tells them. The light is going to have a name. The light is going to dwell among them as a person in order to overwhelm their darkness. Now, I mentioned five afflictions of darkness that God must overcome if we're going to have hope. And I just, I want to very briefly walk through them and show, I think, how this scripture counteracts the darkness that we all know and face. Right? No, no one is unique in the exception here. We all will know exactly what we mean when we say that darkness first means lostness. Lostness. We've all experienced being lost. Maybe you felt lost and in the dark, quite literally in the dark, groping around, unsure of where you are. It's a terrifying feeling. But lostness spiritually is something far worse. It means that we are far from God, that we are alienated from fellowship and favor with God. And y'all, this is the default position of humanity. 
There is not a single person who can claim righteousness and acceptance before God apart from the intervening work of Jesus Christ. We are by default a lost people. We are sinful and we are ignorant. We are lost and in the dark. But now we see the light. And you see it in verse 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Now we know, of course we know, who the child is. That's Jesus. We all know that because we get to live on the other side of history in the fulfillment of the prophecy. But I want you to notice not just the identity of the child, but notice the nature of his coming. That a child will be born to us, given to us. Y'all, the answer to our lostness is not new and better information that we can then take and do a better job of making ourselves acceptable to God. If I just had more information, if I just had a second chance, right? That's not the cure for human lostness. The answer is not in us. The answer is shown in verse 6. A son is given to us, for us. That means, y'all, that means that the answer, the solution to human lostness is that God comes to find you. Not that you grope and, and search your way and eventually maybe you'll make your way to God. No but that God has come to find us, that Jesus has entered into our lostness to rescue us. You know, that, that's why when, when, when Peter talks about the nature of the Christian church, our identity, who we are, something Peter says in 1 Peter 2, we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so I encourage you today, really and truly, if you feel lost right now, if you feel, for whatever reason, you feel far from God in this moment, I want you to know that here at Harvest Church, we don't hand out maps and encourage you to get to work. We're not here to help you clean up your life and find your way back to God because that's not how it works what we're here to do week by week, day by day, is to encourage each other in good news, not good advice. And the good news is that there is a Savior who has entered into this darkened world to be our light, to save us. You don't have to go out wandering and searching for him. The scripture simply says, receive him. To as many as those who received him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. He has been given to us. We receive him as a gift. That's the only solution to our lostness, and it's been provided in full. The light has pierced the darkness. The second thing I mentioned is fear. That, that fear and despair, and I'm going to couple fear and despair together because really they're kind of like cousins. They go hand in hand. Oftentimes fear is what leads to despair. Right? That that is for us a form of darkness, an understood Darkness, that we all know the feeling of fear and despair. Now, I want you to think about this. That at the time of Jesus' birth, perhaps you've heard this before, when Jesus did enter into the world through the Virgin Mary, that, that God had been effectively silent for about 400 years leading up to that moment. That there had been no new prophecy, no new books of the Bible written. That God's people, in, in many ways, were in a, in a place of despair because they were becoming 
more and more convinced that God had moved on, that God had forgotten them, or that God was not somehow perhaps going to fulfill his promise. Israel was just a shadow of her former glory. The Roman Empire had taken charge, and they were under the rule of pagans, Gentiles, who had no fear and respect of God. And so there was cause for fear. There was cause for despair. And yet we see the promise. You see it again in verse 6. Unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. God will send a son, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Now that all by itself, that is incredible news. Because I don't know if you've paid attention to the goings-on of the government. Ours or anybody else's government, for that matter. And as to how we're doing, how we're progressing as a human race. Y'all, we are spiraling into insanity. And I don't say that to be funny. That we, there is, if, you, if you are trusting in government, in policy, in economic prosperity, if you're, if you're putting your hope in those things, in elected officials, in, in campaign promises, then there is more than enough cause for fear and despair. No one is fulfilling their promises ultimately. Now, we still have it better than the people of Galilee. We're not under the oppressive Roman Empire. I understand that. I'm thankful for democracy. But I'm saying this. If you look at ours or any other government in this world, the hope is not there. It can't be. It's not meant to be. Only fear and despair if that's where our anchor is. But fear not, Isaiah says. Do not despair. Because one is coming. Upon his shoulders, the government will rest. God's Son will be born to us, and one day he will rule the earth, and the task will not be too much for him. His divine shoulders will be broad enough to carry the weight. The governance of the entire human race will rest easily upon him. And here's why we have nothing to fear. It's not just that Jesus is powerful. But look at his name in verse 7, or verse 6. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In the Bible, we understand a person's name is their character. It's their essence. This is who this person is. It's their name. And y'all, there's so much meaning wrapped up in these, in these titles here. We can't possibly cover it in depth. But let me just give a quick overview here. What is the scripture telling us about our Savior? Wonderful Counselor means that Jesus is going to graciously, joyfully lead us into all of God's truth and wisdom. We will never be ignorant again because he is a wonderful counselor who loves us and leads us into truth. Mighty God means that he rules with all divine power and no evil can contend with him. There is for God no yin and yang, no equal and opposite power, no tug of war that we hope will end out in our favor. He is the mighty God, and no darkness can stand against his light. Eternal Father means that forever Jesus will care for and provide for us as his children, as those who are of his own household. We are not scattered about in the darkness, hoping for light to come in the distance. We are those who have been brought near. We have a Father who loves us and provides for us now 
and forever. And then Prince of Peace means that Jesus will restore and reconcile this broken world. That Jesus reconciles us to God. He gives us peace with God. And he can even give us peace with each other. And that seems even less likely to happen sometimes, doesn't it? Peace with God almost seems easier than peace with each other. And yet Jesus Christ will accomplish both. He is the Prince of Peace. Y'all, it is, let me just say, it's, it's in very natural, entirely natural, for us to feel fear and despair. I'm not saying it's right, but it's natural. If you look at the world, and, and we're meant to, at, at the time of Advent, we're meant to recognize the darkness, the reality of our broken world. And it's hard to look at. It's hard to dwell on. It's easy for us to fall into fear and despair when we look at the future, when we consider our own livelihood, when we think about our nation, uh, our children, and the world that our children are going to inherit, it can be a scary thing. And the reason we enter into feelings of fear and despair is because we know deep down that we can't control these things. We cannot ultimately control our own lives, let alone the future in the world. But that's why we're given good news, that the light which comes into the darkness has a name. God is not sending power upon us. God is sending himself. He sends his son. You notice what Isaiah says, his name shall be called, and he gives us four names. Is that a grammatical error? It's not. And I think that the the wonderful purpose of saying his name shall be called and then giving us four things is to show us the totality of the divine son of God that he's not just coming to help us out in one or two areas to scoot us along to a better way of life, that he's coming in fullness, in totality, to accomplish all of God's good purposes, both now and forever, that he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, and the prince of peace, and therefore, for us, there is truly nothing to despair. Nothing. Because the light has come to shine in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overpower it. There is nothing that can contend with Jesus Christ and his eternal rule over us. And so it's natural for us to feel fear and despair, as it was very natural for the people of God to feel it too. But that's why we're given the promise, not of better days, but a promise of God's divine rule forevermore. He didn't come to improve upon us. He came to save us forever. And that's what leads us to the last part of of darkness that has to be dealt with. It's the darkness of sin and death. And I'm coupling these together also because they work together, that sin is what leads to death. Death reigns in this world because of sin. Now, something I can be guilty of is I'll acknowledge, yes, there's darkness in the world, but I think of it primarily in terms of what's outside of me. There's darkness out there. There's bad people out there. There's bad policies in government. And, you know, it's outside of me, and I sure wish God would do something about it, you know. Um, and I fail to recognize and deal with the fact that there's darkness in here. And that truly, our greatest problem, beyond anything else, our greatest problem is the darkness within us, the sin and death that resides in our hearts. This is, Jesus said this in John chapter 3. He makes note of the fact that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. 
speaking about himself. But men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. You notice that Jesus says, uh, light has come. Light has come to expel darkness. But in order for light to expel darkness, it's got to get down into Kyle York's heart. It's not just a problem that exists around me. The deepest issue is in me, because in my sin, I love darkness. In my sin, I may want God and like God and have a desire for God, but I will not choose God over the darkness. I will hold on to enough sin to satisfy my sinful heart. That is the ultimate issue Jesus Christ has to solve, is the fact that we like sin, even if we hate it at the same time. We love darkness. So how in the world is God going to expel the darkness if it resides within the human heart? Well, look again at verse 7 of Isaiah 9. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Y'all, this is a prophecy of power, and I don't have to preach the explanation of that. It's very clear, the power that's just coming off the page here, declaring that Jesus is going to sit on the throne over all creation forever. But we need to be clear that God is not interested in power for its own sake. God is not power-hungry because he feels deficient and insecure, and he needs control over us. It's not power for its own sake. When it says that there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, think about the government we're talking about. We just expressed the name of Jesus Christ as to his character in governing, his character in leadership. It's not just an increase in power, but what this means is that into eternity future, forever and ever, There will be no limit to the expression and the expansion of the character of Jesus Christ. More than just his power over the the world. It's who he is growing in greater and greater measure over us forever. Y'all, there will never come a day, never, ever, ever, where we will hear God say, Y'all, I'm fresh out of grace. I'm I'm tapped out. Come back tomorrow. There will never come a day where someone is going to somehow reach the boundaries of God's justice. As if there's a limit to how gracious and loving and just and kind and forgiving God can be. No, the increase of his government will have no end. And so when, Jesus, when, we, when we say that Jesus Christ is going to rule with justice and righteousness, certainly that's, that means that he's going to rule justly and righteously. But it means more than that, because we're talking about the person of Christ. It's not just the rule, it's the ruler. And the ruler came specifically to overwhelm our greatest darkness, sin and death. How does Jesus do it? This, this is... This is something that Isaiah 9 does not address directly, but that Isaiah gets to eventually. And so I'm just going to skip ahead. I'm going to cheat a little bit here today. And I'm going to read a little bit from Isaiah 53. What God promises, the light is going to accomplish. This sun, what will this sun do? How will he deliver us from our darkness? 
He does it in a way that no one would have ever guessed. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he, the Son, the light, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, his wounds, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Uh, y'all, this is, this is the, the part of Christianity that just is, good, is too good to be true. It feels too good to be true. This is, for me, sometimes the hardest part to really want to believe, that this could be true. That a righteous and just God would take upon himself our unrighteousness and injustice. Now think about this. How how does Jesus, who comes to rule justly, how is Jesus going to deal justly with your sin? By becoming sin for you. By taking your punishment in your place. That's beyond our comprehension. How, How is Jesus going to deal with the finality of death and the darkness of death? By dying. By dying on the cross. He enters into sin. He enters into death in order to dispel the darkness of those things. Y'all, you you notice this if you read the Gospels. Never once in Jesus' 33 years did he ever sit down on a throne. People wanted him to. At one point, they tried to grab hold of him and make him king. And he withdrew because he knew what was in their hearts. Never once did he come to sit on a throne. That was not why he came. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Jesus came to us in a manger, in a backwoods town that no one would have guessed. And Jesus oftentimes had nowhere to lay his head. He spoke of the fact that Birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head at night. Jesus had hardly anything to his name. On the day that he was arrested, his clothes were ripped off his back, and that's all he owned. And even that was taken from him and gambled away. And then he was nailed to a cross between thieves and killed as a common criminal. What kind of king is that? And yet, what we know is this, that on the cross, Jesus Christ conquered sin. So that all who believe in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. And then, and only then, did God raise him from the dead as victory over death in the grave. Now, what kind of king would do something like this? What kind of king would look upon sinners, and rather than simply proclaiming judgment upon them, he would take the judgment for them? What kind of king would look over the problem of death and rather than trying to preserve his own life at the expense of his people, would give his life for the sake of them? Only the King Jesus. And we now share in that victory the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection in which we will share. We will share in resurrection with Christ. We share in those things by faith as a gift. Not something we earn, but what we receive. Y'all, the darkness of sin and death have been vanquished by Christ because he passed through them for us, through sin, through death, and now we are free. 
And y'all, the last little line in, in Isaiah 9-7, it's not little at all. It's short. You notice it, Isaiah 9-7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That means that, the, that God is passionately committed to your salvation. He has promised it, and it is done. He said a light would come, and it has come. He promised a son would be given, and a son was given. God delights to fulfill his promise. He is zealous for us. And that's why Jesus could say of himself, this was not arrogant, by the way, it was simply the truth. Jesus said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. This is the great joy of Advent. And this is the great privilege, friends, that we get to look into the darkness. Harsh as it may be, difficult as it may be, we'd much rather rush into the celebration of Christmas. I know, because that's how I am. And yet if we slow down and reflect on our need for saving, why does Christmas even exist at all? Except that sinners living in darkness required the intervening grace of God. And in love, he gave us a son. To peer into the darkness is for us not something that leads us back to lostness or fear or despair or sin or death, but to look into the darkness is what makes the light all the more glorious to us. The light has come to give us life. Let's pray. Father, would you grant us this morning to believe in these truths? Uh, there's nothing in Isaiah 9 for us to do. There's no, there are no commands. Simply promises of what will be done, and in our case, what has been done. That a son has been given a light has shone in the darkness. It's the only reason we sit here right now is that our darkness has been dispelled and we belong to Jesus Christ. But Father, would you also give us grace this morning to see that we live as yet in the in-between. That some of these promises that we've celebrated this morning have yet to come into their full fruit, that we still look ahead to the day where the government will rest upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, where he will make an enemies, his enemies the footstool of his feet, where he will vanquish wickedness and all darkness forever and bring us into uh, glory and light once and for all. Father, give us this morning... Uh, faith to believe in the first coming of Christ and all that he accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. Lord, give us faith to do what your scripture says, that because we are now light in the Lord by faith, that we will walk as children of light, that we will live lives that reflect what we've been given in Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would deepen our hunger, our longing for his second coming. Where all 
evil and, and all pain and all of our hurts, Lord, where everything that we've experienced may be fully and finally redeemed, where the promise of your word that you work all things together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, and that your purpose is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, that, Lord, we look ahead to that day where that promise will be fully realized in the face of our Savior, and that, Lord, we will not lose sight of the ongoing need we have for that day, that we still live in a world plagued by darkness, and that, Lord, you have promised um, salvation. Father, give us, I pray, a full view this morning of our great need and your great provision. And that, Lord, you would show us, just in our own lives, in our own community, in this church, and in our own hearts, that there is no more anguish and gloom for those who are living in a dark land. A light has dawned on them. And that Jesus Christ has come. And we may turn our eyes to him now in faith and delight to walk with him. Lord, thank you that he is the light so that we no longer remain in darkness. And we praise you in his name. Amen.